to Issue Spot, the policy podcast of the Boston Bar Association. I'm Mike Abitzer. I'm the Government Relations Director at the VBA, and I am joined today by Andy Rothstein, a partner at Goulston & Stores, and Joe Beerworth, a partner at Hemingway & Barnes. And you two are here today as the co-chairs of the VBA's Trust and Estates section. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about each of your practices? This is Andy. My practice is advising uh, individuals about the laws that apply to disposing of wealth, either during lifetime or at death, and also advising fiduciaries about, uh, fiduciaries meaning trustees, executors, and the like, about the legal rules that apply to what they do, including the tax rules. So Mike, thanks for having us. So my practice, this is Joe Beerworth, is uh, a little more centered around trust and estates litigation. I do some estate planning like Andy, as well as some service as a fiduciary, as a trustee or executor for our clients. But with the fiduciary litigation piece of my practice, I represent fiduciaries and beneficiaries in probate court and protect their rights involved in trust litigation and family disputes, as well as, as I said, general advice as a, as a trustee to, to families. So we've asked you to come in today to talk about what becomes of digital assets, things like email accounts, <coughs> Facebook, Instagram, and so on, when the account holder dies or becomes incapacitated. That's become an increasingly relevant issue, which is obvious if you think about it for even a minute, but that's just it. Too many people don't stop to think about what they want to happen and, and therefore they don't plan for it. Have you, as either of you, had occasion to deal with that firsthand? I have not personally, but I know that uh, others at my firm have. And um, as a result of that, what we've begun doing is um, planning around that. And um, as I think Andy and his firm have, um, begun writing into our clients' estate planning documents some mechanisms for dealing with that. Now, you know, with the current state of the law, we're going to get into that you know, as we move forward here. Um, we're not certain about you know, the effectiveness of those provisions that we write in, but we've started the plan around it because, Mike, as you say, it, it is really a big part of people's holdings these days, and it's really how people communicate with one another, how they keep their financial and personal records. So it definitely is something that needs some attention. My experience is, yes, we, we include provisions now in our documents, and we talk to clients about their digital assets. And so as part of a, an interview or a meeting with a client, we'll discuss, well, what do you have and what kinds of arrangements can you make so somebody can get access to those things? When dealing with a husband and wife, I've often heard the husband and wife say to me, oh, well, the other one knows all my passwords, and that's our practical solution for dealing with this. And then I ask the question, well, what happens when the other one is no longer around to do that? And I think um, really that's where we get into, can we give somebody legal authority to access these accounts when the account holder can't do it him or herself? Uh, like I said, we and, and Joe said, we've been including provisions, relatively new provisions in our documents that attempt to do that, but there's a real question as to the effectiveness of those provisions under current law. 
And I think that's why we're going down the road of Rufata. But, but I think Andy makes a good point, which is that you know, before we get into you know, the provisions about consent and, and someone acting in a fiduciary capacity, there is sort of that sort of practical on the ground advice of make sure that you have stored somewhere the passwords for your various accounts and that there's someone who you trust who has access to that. Now, you know, whether or not that's exactly, you know, by the rules is one thing, but, but I do think that it is important to have that information cached away somewhere. Yeah, I don't know that anybody necessarily knows what all the rules might be relative uh -huh. to accessing these accounts because those rules generally are written it seems by each provider in their terms of service. So each account that somebody might have may very well have a different set of rules about who can access accounts and when and the like. And, and my sense is, at least based on my own experience, I never read those things. I just click accept. Right. I think you're in the vast majority on that. Yeah, are those, uh, is that what they call the click wrap? Agreements. Click wrap, the terms of service agreement, mm -hmm. right. Um, so it's the very, very fine print that you'll see and you just click right by it as you're you know, eager to get working with the software or app or whatever it might be. Yeah. Andy, you mentioned uh, Rufada, the um, Revised Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act. And I want to talk about that in a bit, but uh, you both mentioned some uncertainty right now as I understand it, this is very much a gray area with no existing state or federal law that's directly on point. So what kinds of practical problems does that present for your work? Well, as a planning lawyer, you plan with known rules generally, and you help clients work within those known rules. If the rules are unknown, it's awfully hard to plan. If you're dealing with sort of a patchwork quilt of rules and everybody's got a different set of rules because each provider has their own terms of service and I don't know how I could know all of those rules. I don't think a client would want me to want to pay me to understand all those rules and explain how they each different one, each different set applies. So that's part of the problem. When you receive your appointment from a court as a personal representative of, a, of an estate, one of your primary duties are to sort of marshal the assets of the estate, gather information about the, the holdings of the decedent, and as we've said, one of the primary places that people keep information these days about their assets is, is on their computer, on these online accounts, and just simply as an information gathering tool to be able to have the access to access a, a, a Gmail account or a Yahoo account or something, you know, could lead to the discovery of other assets. And your duty as a, as a PR runs to the beneficiaries of the state to maximize the value of the estate. So um, it does um, present, I, I would think, not just a theoretical impediment toward fulfilling your duties. You know, sort of on the provider side of things, there's a set of rules that apply to them too that requires them essentially to keep people's data and information secure. And they're mindful of not violating those rules. And that's why they're wanting to limit, potentially limit access to, to this information because they don't know who they can and necessarily can and can't give it to. 
Now, Rufada language attempts to, to balance the interests, I know, of a, a number of different stakeholders. You've got the account holder, obviously, the fiduciary we've talked about who's the could be the personal representative for the estate or in some cases a guardian or a conservator. And then you have the internet provider like Google or Twitter or even some video game company where you may have an account that has some value. Anyone else with an interest in, in these issues? For an estate, you know, the beneficiaries, I think, are you know, have a legitimate interest in, you know, what assets are left behind and what information is left behind. So you know, this is the, the sort of classic example that we talk about sometimes where you have, you know, communications that are stored in a more traditional way. There's a box that's locked that's under, you know, the bed of, you know, grandfather and he, and he passes away. The personal representative has the right to go in and, you know, take custody of that box, open it up, see what the, see what the communications are, the letters, the notes, the memorabilia, photos, etc. Now all of that oftentimes is stored online. So, you know, for the beneficiaries to, to have access to, say, a, a, an account with photographs of, of a loved one who passed away is, you know, that's legitimate. And that's something that um, you know, is taken into account in Rufada if the decedent has provided the consent for access to that. So, you know, that's just another interest that, that is out there, I think. So I think another stakeholder, potentially, is a, a person on the other side of communications with a decedent. That person probably has some interest in not having those communications disclosed. And I think that's also part of what we see in Rufada, is an, an acknowledgement that there are some privacy considerations here, so we have to tread carefully. And that's why Rufada seems to take the position that we're going to give access to these digital assets provided that the person who held the account gave permission. So presumably if that person gave permission, that person knew that other people could potentially see communications and perhaps that person would be mindful of that when communicating with people on the other side. And you're right, Andy, and it really gets to you know, the point that what Rufata calls for in that case is, is, is a conscious act, right? It gets to sort of the difference between the, the level of expectation of privacy that people have, I think, sometimes in electronic communications these days as opposed to more traditional forms of communications where, you know, to some extent, email, but certainly by text, people think of that more as uh, sort of a, an oral conversation almost. So if you are you know, not the decedent or the person under guardianship or the uh, donor of the trust, but someone who's communicating with that person, you might have a, a level of expectation that when you send that, the person will keep it private as opposed to something that you would reduce to, say, you know, a letter or something like that. So I think that you know, Rufada is an effort to sort of recognize that um, modern day there should be that level of a conscious act in order to waive you know, those privileged rights, at least by you know, someone whose estate we're looking at. Now, there are actually a number of bills filed with the Massachusetts legislature that seek to address this issue, but at the suggestion of your trust in the state section, the BBA has endorsed RUFADA, which the, the language that we've been talking about. 
which was developed by the Uniform Law Commission less than two years ago and has already been adopted in at least 31 states, I think. So in addition to the aspects of Bravada that we've talked about, what are some of the other advantages of, of that approach? Well, two, two primary advantages are, well, first, it's, it's becoming uniform. 30-some-odd states have it. And if every state were to have this, it makes it a lot simpler for everybody to understand uh, the landscape. But the, the second, in terms of Rufata as opposed to any of the other proposals on this same topic that are out there, is that Rufata has the support of the digital industry. And, and that's very important. They're committed to this act and to participate in what it says. All, all of that is, uh, are, are good considerations um, and arguments for Rufada as opposed to some other bills that are out there. Yeah, in addition, Rufada sort of covers the waterfront. It deals with um, four types of um, fiduciaries. There's the one that we've mostly been talking about, the personal representative of decedent's estate, but it also covers trustees, it covers um, attorneys, in fact, under a power of attorney, and it covers guardians for, or conservators as well. So as long as the person who is the principal, if you will, uh, in each of those circumstances you know, provides this consent, then each of those types of fiduciaries um, get the level of access that they're entitled to under Rufada. So that's why we favor that form of the and Andy, you talked a little bit uh, just now about the position of the uh, providers. As I understand it, they have a concern related to a decades-old federal statute. And I think we should also talk about you know, a long-standing case that also touches on that federal statute, the Story Communications Act. And that case is uh, a Jamian the Yahoo, which is expected to be decided soon by the SJC. Can you talk a little bit about what's being argued in that case and how a ruling there could affect the landscape, at least in Massachusetts? My understanding is that this case is sort of the poster child of what's currently at stake. That is to say, we have, in this case, uh, an individual died and left no instruction as to whether he wanted somebody to have access to his digital assets or not. And his executor, personal representative, sought access to his Yahoo account in order to figure out whether there was anything there, I suppose, of value to the estate. They believed that perhaps there would be. On the other hand, Yahoo, the provider, as I understand it, has said, look, we've got this federal statute out there that says we have to keep things protected, and Yahoo doesn't want, doesn't want to give full access to the account. That's how I understand it. Joe, you might know more. No, I think that's exactly right. So it, it's the, the federal act is the Stored Communications Act, and it provides some exceptions, and one of the exceptions is consent, but it doesn't make any provision for... Uh, fiduciaries to have access, right? So the, the personal representative in this case, and as you mentioned, Mike, it is you know, currently at the Supreme Judicial Court. It's been briefed, it's been argued, and we're waiting for a, a decision. Uh, but the PRs in this case you know, argued that these assets should be treated just like any other property of the estate, and that as the fiduciaries, they stepped into the shoes of the decedent, and they should be entitled to 
full access, not just to you know a list of the content, which I think was you know possibly a middle ground in that case, but also you know the the content itself, so that they would see the email communications and and that would implicate, as Andy indicated, not only the you know the rights of of Yahoo as a as an email provider, but also as we touched on earlier the rights of you know, the senders and receivers of these email communications who are not you know, party to this litigation. Um, so those are the interests that the SJC is looking to balance. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. We could, you know, we could all envision different outcomes and different levels of protection or access that the SJC might provide. But on the other hand, it's also, it seems to me, to be a pretty stark up or down case. And it, and it may very well be that we'll get a decision but in the interim, and I've been asked this question, in the interim to us on balance at the BBA, we think that the, the Rufada legislation would be advisable because, you know, as, we've, as we've said, there are, there's no statutory law out there right now. And it would, in, in essence, you know, put a momentary halt to some of this quarreling about privacy versus access and give everybody some guideposts to work with, and then we would see what the what the SJC did. Just following up on that, can you paint a picture for us of what trust in the state practice will look like in this area if nothing changes versus if Rufada is enacted? I think it seems, at least, that some participants in the sort of digital industry are working on almost a self-help solution which is actually contemplated in Rufada, and that is the creation of what has been referred to as an online tool that gives people the option to designate who can have access to accounts in the event of, uh, say, death. So that's, that's one angle, I think. That, that involves, though, a lot of using a lot of tools to accomplish something. Whereas if Rufada comes into being, folks can do that almost in an omnibus way, in a will, by saying, essentially, I want to give so-and-so access to everything, rather than having to go account by account and figure this out. So that when somebody is drafting a will, it will be much more convenient to just say, oh, and when I'm... For, for purposes of online access, I want my executor to be the one to have access to everything. And, and in terms of you know, what the world looks like to practitioners, you're right. I mean, this, the status quo puts us squarely in that gray zone that you outlined earlier that we talked about. So I think that you know, for trust and estates practitioners, we would still be working in this murky landscape where we're providing advice, we're not quite sure how effective that advice is, and it's this, that type of uncertainty that people uh, look to us to uh, do away with. So for, for the bar, uh, you know, it's an important item to sort of check off that you know, we, have, we would have, if Rufada passed, something that's been tested in other states, that's currently in practice in other states, and we would expect that you know, we would be able to follow along uh, in getting the good results that we've heard about from other states. The next step in the legislative process is for the Judiciary Committee to hold a hearing on all these bills. 
which is actually happening a few days after we record this podcast. And I know, Joe, you'll be there to advocate for Rufada on behalf of the BBA. Do you know what you plan to tell the committee? Well, I'll be there as part of a panel, and there will be two members of a standing committee that is in place in Massachusetts to deal with legislation relating to wills and trusts and fiduciary issues. So Mark Bluestein from Ropes and Gray and Colin Korzik from U.S. Trust um, will also be there. So between the three of us, we'll provide the committee with just this type of background that we've been talking about today. And I'll emphasize that um, you know, from my point of view, we have tracked this revised uniform law through the process here at the BBA, and we've addressed you know, all the issues that we've talked about here today with the governing bodies at the BBA who come from all different practice areas, and some of them come from practice areas where they represent technology companies, where they're particularly concerned about privacy rights you know, of others. And you know, we've, we've talked about it internally here at the BBA, and we've received you know, unanimous votes at every level in support of RUFADA, and I think that that's something in, in particular to emphasize to the, uh, to the legislative committee. If I was at the was at the BBA Council meeting mm-hmm. where essentially all of the representatives of the members of the Boston Bar Association were assembled and we reviewed uh, this act and there was a very good discussion, especially in light of the um, pending SJC case. And after that detailed discussion, there was essentially a vote. Should we support Rufada? And it was unanimous that everybody thought that this was the way to go. Well, Andy and Joe, thank you for, first of all, bringing this issue to the BBA and vetting it thoroughly through the Trust and Estates section. Thank you for sitting down with us today, and thanks for helping the BBA make the case for enactment of Rufada in Massachusetts. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. Thank you.